So we've uh, had an opportunity to uh, practice together today. It, uh, although it has its own challenges and um, hasn't necessarily been easy for uh, some, some particularly those that are, are new and finding their way with meditation, with the retreat experience, uh, however, for me, it's uh, it's felt like a blessing. It's a, always a blessing to be able to be together with a group of practitioners um, in this world where there are so many other places we could be that are uh, perhaps more uncertain or demanding or difficult or, or um, challenging, uh, to be able to focus um, and align ourselves with the Dharma. I feel this is a, a blessing and I appreciate very much uh, being in, having this opportunity. One doesn't know how long uh, our lives will last. Life is very fleeting, very uncertain. And so being able to align ourselves and take this opportunity together is, is, a, is a wholesome and beneficial thing, I believe, uh, I feel. Uh, it's always, in many ways, I feel coming into practice the Dhamma, uh, even after so many years, I always have this feeling of beginning again, uh, that uh, one is never quite an expert. I always have the feeling I should be an expert. <laughs> Particularly sitting in this seat, I would like to be an expert. <laughs> but I have to humbly acknowledge that I'm not. <laughs> And that there is the, the feeling of realigning oneself over and over again uh, with, with both the practice, with the capacity for awareness, mindfulness, with the willingness to meet life as it is. And, and that in and of itself always feels somewhat challenging, has a challenge in it. And being able to, to encourage oneself to try and soften into that challenge, open uh, and uh, receive the teaching of the moment. So it is a, a way that we can align or tune ourselves to this attitude of beginning again, meeting how it is freshly in each moment, being willing to openly be with how it is. And in, in, in this theme tonight, I would like to um, approach the talk, the Dhamma talk tonight, by drawing on an analogy that the Buddha made to the path and the way of awakening being a gradual process. Um, and although in many ways we talk about awakening, wakefulness, awareness, always being present, uh, there's nothing to really attain, there's nothing ultimately to, to get rid of or attain. There's only the, the awakening into here and now, into, into the deeper refuge of the heart of awareness. The paradox is there's still a gradual unfolding, there's still a deepening, there's still uh, an accumulative effect of the moments of path activity that ripen in and of themselves to this liberation of heart. So both are true, it's present here and now, but also there is this gradual unfolding. 
teaching that the, the Buddha gave in terms of this analogy. Just as an ocean has a gradual shelf, a gradual slope, a gradual inclination with a sudden drop-off only after a long stretch. In the same way, this Dhamma Vinaya, this Dhamma or this teaching, this doctrine, and the discipline Vinaya, the training, has a gradual training, a gradual performance, a gradual progression with liberation only after a long stretch. So this analogy of uh, you know, when you go into, if you go swimming and you go into an ocean and you're walking into the, the ocean, this sense of, of, of the, the shelf, you don't perhaps um, get the sense of how you're going deeper because in this analogy, although some ocean floors you can just, <laughs> you can just drop and you don't quite know that was coming, and that can happen in meditation too, actually. <laughs> Happens for people. But this, this is just an analogy, isn't it? It's just this sense of, of, of something sloping, and, and perhaps you don't quite know, you can't judge it moment by moment, the deepening effect, but there is that effect of immersing oneself more and more in the Dhamma. A, a similar analogy that the Buddha made was like walking into the mist. You don't exactly know at what point um, you become wet, your clothes become wet, but at one point you were dry and at another point you were wet. There was a transition, but there was, it wasn't necessarily marked by an exact point in time and space, but there's this process of transition. So in the same way, although we practice moments of uh, mindfulness, moments of, as we have been doing today, patiently, kindly, bringing training attention to be with how it is, to connect with breath, to follow even one or maybe three breaths mindfully, um, to gather in to our awareness, the energies of body, heart, and mental process. Um, this, this, you know, although this, this, we can only ever apply this moment of, moment by moment of path activity, the accumulative effect is hard to, to apprehend. But, you know, there are moments when that accumulative effect is important, that it can come into play, moments when life is challenging, seriously challenging, or very, or we are really uh, needing to be very present for, for an experience that may have before overwhelmed us. And we find that the accumulation of this mo- these moments of practice can actually come about in, in in an unexpected way, almost in a mysterious way, and help us meet a situation in life uh, when we perhaps before would have been swept away, would have been overwhelmed, would have acted out in unskillful ways. So Ajahn Chah would talk about practice, this this difficult practice as he sometimes called it. Ajahn Chah was our um, Thai forest master who inspired both Kitty Sara and I uh, many years ago to, to practice, to practice the path of Dhamma. One of the things that he would say about the seemingly insignificant process of slogging through a day of meditation, <laughs> going through boring mind states, going through distraction, 
beginning again and again, he would say all of this difficult practice is preparation. It's like preparation for, for the moments when, when we are seriously challenged, when things arise internally or challenge us externally, when there could be a possibility we just default uh, to despair or to, to violence or to, to uh, you know, depression or to overwhelm that we have the capacity, we've gathered the strength to meet that moment with as much presence as we can. So not to, not to um, dismiss the, even the seemingly insignificant uh, moments of being as present as we can, however the states of mind are, however the bodily experience is, being able to be as present as we can during days like today. There is, a, there is a blessing, there is an accumulative effect. So this gradual way of practice is really, it's not about the sort of the big explosions of what we might think enlightenment is, where all the lights go off and there's never any challenge or suffering ever, ever again, like a Hollywood movie where it all finishes with people going into the sunset happy ever after. There's no struggle, there's no doubts, you know, we're clear, we become experts. It's not really like the ideal in, in that way, but the gradual path of practice is made up of applying both in the meditative work that we've been doing on retreat and in our daily life, these moments that go against the currents of our habit, the habits that just spin us out and you know, spin us into to, to worry, to anxiety, to distraction, uh, to our dreamlike states. So you know, these we build, this practice builds little by little and helps to reverse the flow of, of, of the, the habit of the mind. Uh, the unconsciousness that we can fall into, the lack of consciousness, the lack of awareness. So in this gradual way of awakening, um, the Buddha recommended the cultivation of what he called the eight streams or eight, eight conditions, eight practices, eight observations that that ripen into what he called the streams of, of the word he used was punya, which has the, I think, possibly slightly unfortunate translation of, of merit, which sounds like, I don't know if you had girl guides here in the States, but when I was younger, we used to get sort of merit badges for doing, you know, um, good things as girl guides when I was younger. But it has this, the, 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 perhaps a fuller word is blessings energy of blessings, what brings blessings into our life, what brings wholesome effect into our life, and that we can plant causes. We can actually, in these moments of practice, we can plant the causes that bring about the stream of blessing, a stream of wholesome energy, which is very fundamental and very important as a foundation for this small subtle work of the samadhi, the, the meditation, and then the subtler work of inquiry and insight. The, the wisdom is founded on these streams of merit or streams of blessings. 
It's a great blessing, actually, to be able to, to practice the Dharma. This is one, one of the great blessings. But uh, more specifically, I'd like to tonight just touch into these, these conditions that give rise uh, to these eight streams that give rise to this accumulative effect of, of wholesome, wholesomeness in one's life, blessing energy in one's life, well-being, healing. And again, they're not things that we just do once. They're not attributes, practices that we just sort of memorize, tick off in the box. They're, they're an ongoing lifetime's practice, lifetime's cultivation, little by little by little, like that entering into the mist until they become embodied, they become deepened into our being, into our lives, and become almost automatic. Um, our default mechanism, if you like, our way of being, our way, our way of referencing ourselves within life. So these eight streams are classically called the foundation, or one aspect of the foundation of the path of awakening, which are the three refuges sometimes called the triple jewels, three aspects, and the five precepts, the five trainings in ethical observance, observance, observances. These, uh, these, in a way, orientate ourselves within a practice framework uh, as we cultivate in our, in our lives. Uh, and they, you know, they're very, they become very important for creating the conditions for this work of meditation, this work of samadhi, this work of uh, gatheredness. It's very hard to cultivate a gathered heart and mind to establish awareness if in our daily life we just are very unconscious about um, how we act, how we speak, how we are, we're very unconscious and just run along our habit patterns and then when we come to try and gather, to sit, to practice, um, we're going to experience the reverberations of that kind of uh, way of being. Mm. So another thing Ajahn Chah would say, he would be amazed actually as Westerners when he first came, in fact he came here to IMS I think in 79, 1979. Uh, for you younger ones, that might seem an eon ago. It doesn't seem so long ago to me. But uh, he came here and he was amazed to see uh, uh, Western Bay people practicing so diligently and doing these intensive retreats. Um, and he observed it all and thought about it. And then, you know, he's, and then he, would, he made this interesting comment. He said, you know, it's interesting. He said, you people, he said, you're a bit like, you use meditation retreats a bit like having a good lawyer. <laughs> you get yourself into trouble, and then you go on a retreat, and you sort of get sprung out of trouble, and you, you sort of realign and get good, and then go back and get into trouble again. And, <laughs> and then you go and get your lawyer, ring up your lawyer, and say, it's a good analogy in America, isn't it? <laughs> you sort of get sprung out of, of jail again. And he said, what you really need to understand is what gets you in jail, what gets you in trouble, you know, so that uh, the, the practice can become more integrated and more even. So it's, you know, not like, oh, 
God, I've got to get to the next retreat because my life's become a mess again. Um, so he, that was that's an, you know that's pretty observant of Ajahn Chah, but it is an ongoing edge how to integrate this practice. You know, even now we're just starting a retreat, but in some way we should already be uh, holding in our mind's eye, perhaps not on the front burner, but a little bit at the back burner. You know how we are going to actually irrigate this out into our lives, so it's not just separate this separate special thing with controlled conditions where we perhaps grab a little bit of peacefulness and then we go out and then we just, you know, we just get washed away again by the enormous currents that completely can completely overwhelm us and the habits of our drivenness and our compulsions. So these, this gradual, this gradualness is in a way it's beginning to like put these training of the refuges and precepts, it's like putting pegs in that, that helps steady the boat, if you like, of our life that help orientate and anchor and give us ballast and weight and, and, and groundedness. So these three refuges are a, 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 um, somewhere they have a historical external context and they have a very immediate internal aspect. And the very they were the very first transmission that the Buddha would give to those who wanted to follow his way as disciples. It was the very first way of ordaining his disciples was this transmission of the refuges. So it's very ancient. It's something that's been transmitted through time and space. Uh, this refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And, uh, you know, as I said, has, can, we can understand it in different ways. We can understand it as reflecting on the historical Buddha. Perhaps for some of us, that doesn't particularly mean a lot. Um, we don't really have a strong sense of connection. Uh, perhaps for others of us, if we've been involved in these teachings um, for a while, we begin to consider the historical uh, person that transmitted these teachings and the, in a way the brilliance of, of how he did that how thoroughly that happened, um, his command of, 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 uh, you know, of, the, of both awakening and human, the human predicament, his compassion in spending 40-odd years transmitting the teaching, which is a, v- a very challenging thing to do in all sorts of challenging circumstances. Uh, all of that we can reflect on. It's an archetype, if you like, the Buddha is a historical figure, but it's also his journey, his, his transmission is an archetypal journey, the journey of, a, of one that's awakening, awakened, and then chooses out of compassion to help others, to transmit the teachings, to heal, to, to be present for his community, to find out ways to help his family, to try and awaken others. Um, you know, this is, this is something that, that can become a meaningful uh, paradigm for our lives. And, you know, not only the Buddha, but other teachers. So the, the Buddha, refuge in the Buddha, in some ways represents refuge or considering someone like the Buddha, considering these great teachers, saints, sages that appear and dedicate their lives through service as something we can actually learn from, we can consider, we can 
be inspired by, we can align with. They're, they're great examples. So that's one level of, in a way, of refuge. It's a, it's a way that we align or lean into or and consider or, you know, feel hope, perhaps, of the potential that we carry as human beings, the potential to live um, in spite of so many challenges, to live really wholesome, awakened, compassionate, wise life. And I think of someone like, for example, um, in the country Kisa and I, where we've worked for 15 years, we arrived in 94 during the political transitions from the, the apartheid white government to the black government, uh, which really came about in the, in the, there were a lot of, there were a lot of turf wars and difficulty and, and an enormous struggle that preceded that transition, but the, the smoothness in, in, in many regards to what it could have been, it could have been an absolute deterioration into a war, but the, the capacity for that transition to happen was really highly influenced by a few people, one of them, of course, being Mr. Mandela. Um, so you can you know, say, well, he's not a historical Buddha, but he's a, a cat, he's a historical figure in our time that we can reflect on, you know, 27 years in prison, family taken away from him, great deprivation. Um, you know, I've seen the cell that he lived in. It was as big as this table, almost twice, maybe three times the size of that table for 18 years. It'd be hard to come out of that experience and not be extremely bitter and warlike and wanting revenge. I mean, that would be natural. We would understand that. But he, he didn't. He transformed the experience and he came out with this very universal message, the kind of message we, 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 we all need to hear continually, actually. You know, looking at the common denominator of our humanity, appealing to the, the, the most noble part of all of our humanities, whatever racial background, whatever context we're in, whatever religious background. Appealing for giving a vision, you know, tremendous vision that allowed a whole country to go through a, the enormous transition it did. Um, yeah, it's not to say it doesn't have its shadows and enormous challenges and difficulties, but that, that is uh, a modern day um, you know, inspiration, someone that we could, and he's not the only one, there are many others in that context. There are others, perhaps less well-known people, that sacrificed a lot to bring about uh, the most conscious situation in a situation that was highly unconscious, violent. So this archetype of an awakened one doesn't just have to be you know, a great historical person, but it can be where we see that awakened activity in many different lives, you know, from well-known people to perhaps a grandmother or a child or someone displaying that sort of activity of wise reflection, compassion, patience, the qualities of a Buddha, it's called the paramitas, the virtues. And, we, and that can encourage us, we can align ourselves with that, we can be inspired by that. But most subtly, even if we aren't considering someone external to us, this refuge in Buddha 
is this uh, most internally, most directly, most immediately, when the Buddha gave the, the transmission uh, of the three refuges, he would always use the term Buddhang Saranang Chami, Buddhang the Buddha Saranang Refuge Gachami. Gachami is the present tense verb to go. So it's always in this present tense. It's not like I went to refuge to the Buddha with such and such a lama, so and so, um, you know, <laughs> at Buddhaya, that was it done. Um, we might do that, but we might really lose the thread of the practice if we don't realize that the real refuge is always here and now. It's got to be this good charmy, this going again and again, turning the heart, turning the uh, attention to align, to deepen into this present moment awareness. Buddha literally means that which is knowing, that which is aware, that which is present, that which is pure prajna or the, the, the wisdom faculty, the knowing faculty, the gnosis, undiluted, un- unobstructed, in spite of whatever state, whatever condition is appearing with, through moving through awareness, moving through the heart, whatever the, the experience of the body, healthy or unhealthy, whatever the state of mind, whatever sensation, whatever, however we f- feel the day has been an absolute stunning success, got 10 breaths down in a row, <laughs> that's good, <laughs> or complete and utter write-off, hope it will be better tomorrow, there's always the awareness. It's unmoving, unchanging, un, uh, yeah, unimpeded. And as we, uh, you know, when we align ourselves with this profound refuge in knowing, then we're always in harmony with the Buddha. We're able to be in the seat of the Buddha. One of our monastic teachers said, "Being having the Buddha as the charioteer of our life, rather than worry, fear, dread, uh, speculation, anticipation, uh, the habits of unconsciousness, illness." And yet, this is a practice, isn't it? It's a practice. When we wake, when we hear the bell in the morning, worrying. Oh, what's going to happen today? What should I say? What should we do? Being present, bringing mindfulness to the breath, to the body, being here and now with how it is. So aligning with this awareness, present moment, knowing, which is aware, discerning, awake, has intelligence. It's not knowledge about, it's not knowing lots of things, it's not memorizing a whole library of suttas, but it's that pure capacity of awareness that's present now. It's listening to the words arising and passing, listening to the discernment of our inner process in response to the words. It's that which is, that which is. So rooting, taking refuge in the Buddha, immediately here and now, the Buddha that can reflect on this second refuge, the Dharma. So as we, in the Dharma, traditionally teachings that awaken us, we hear a teaching like 
loving-kindness, we hear a teaching like impermanence, uh, we can reflect on those teachings and they, 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 uh, they have an impact. But even if we haven't got a Dharma book in front of us, even if we haven't had someone giving us the teachings, the Dharma is always unfolding and teaching us. Dharma is always teaching us here and now. So it's said that everything is the Dharma, everything, everything is expressing the Dharma nature. Every mood, every feeling, the, the, the fading of the light, the beginning of the night, the, uh, the daylight, the, the changes in the weather, uh, the reactions. At the very least, it's teaching us it's changing, <laughs> it's moving. It's insubstantial. Can't really grasp it. It's unfolding before our eyes. So, when we're seated in the rooted in the in the awareness, we can reflect on the Dharma nature. We can reflect. It doesn't matter then if it's if we feel it's good or bad. If we have a horrible experience, state of mind, um, we can reflect on it. Whether it's Brilliant, peaceful, beautiful, stunning, enlightened. We can reflect on it. Buddha reflects on all the jewels, the aspects of the conditioned realm as it unfolds. So it's always teaching us, can always teach us, it's always awakening us, always expressing its nature. So it's reflecting when we, in this attitude of aligning or taking refuge in the Dharma, it, what it actually means is here and now, we can we can be we are can be more willing, more willing to be with how it is. You know, just this is something I can reflect on. This is teaching me, rather than this is a drag or I need to get somewhere else for the good stuff, or to you know. Uh, the perfect retreat. So I'm, I don't know what the perfect retreat is, but I know there must be one out there somewhere. Uh, the perfect teacher teachings, whatever. But it, when we actually know the Dharma, how to reflect on the Dharma, then wherever we are, we're hearing the Dharma. Yeah. So, and then this, the third, the third refuge. When we hear the Dhamma, when we know how to, to be and open to how things are, reflect on how things are, then we are in the current of practice. We can practice. Practicing mindfulness, practicing discernment, practicing wise attention, practicing loving kindness, practicing patience, practicing beginning again, practicing generosity. This, this sangha, in, in essence, the most subtle aspect of sangha is this cho- choosing the choice that we have to align ourselves with the capacity to practice, not just being a, like a leaf in the wind, whatever state of mind that comes along, I feel, you know, we just, we just get swept away. Worry, speculation, fretting, hope, fear, being shaped by those states, feelings, emotions. With practice we can know this is how it is, 
bringing awareness, bringing mindfulness to contemplate. What is it to feel like this? What is it to experience the body as it is here and now? So, and to help support this practice, of course, the greater refuge of Sangha is, is others being in relationship. You know, here we couldn't, you know, the truth of Sangha really is, I mean, why, I mean, why didn't the Buddha just go to refuges, Buddha Dhamma, that's all you need? <laughs> would have been easier than trying to get on with everyone else, you know. Just go off to our cave and, you know, I mean, it's kind of tempting. But, you know, it wasn't, you know, this third refuge has uh, basically saying, I think it's saying we can't do it alone, basically. (laughs) Um, Or maybe very few can. You know, we can't even get born alone, that's for sure. We need help to even get here, to get incarnated. Um, But the way of awakening, for good or for ill, it's a sort of marriage into community. And it's, you know, coming into community, it's not, it's definitely not going to be a situation where we're necessarily going to love everyone all the time. For those that have lived in centers or communities or run groups or been in sangha groups, you know, there's friction, there's ups and downs, there's... You know, but we're not there together to necessarily get along or, you know, it's nice to affirm each other and support each other, but we're there to awaken together. So by necessity, there's going to be edges and friction and disagreements. And, and we, can, we can even broaden that. We can say, well, our Sangha is Buddhist practitioners, Dharma practitioners, those that go to IMS, that's my Sangha. But actually, all beings are our Sangha. All beings bring us something <laughs> to practice with. You know, you know, some bring us joy and friendship and support. One of our dearest Sangha members for our 15 years in South Africa was our dog. <laughs> he brought us loyalty, friendship, love, unconditional love. Well, say that. I mean, as long as we fed, fed him biltong and <laughs> <laughs> gave him cuddles and let him sleep in his basket next to us. But, you know, it, it comes in sort of strange guises sometimes, this, uh, this uh, joy, support, love in life. It's not always necessary through human medium. But uh, also some of our, you know, severest challenges come through relationships with others. So... You know, and this, this, when we can turn whatever anyone brings to us in our life, you know, if we can turn that back into practice, then, then we're practicing Sangha. And we can start to get more even, you know, rather than I only want to know these ones, I don't want to know those ones. Uh, you know, the, the, the depth of equanimity can arise not in spite of life and relationship, but through working through the mud and the messiness of relationship. Until we can uh, be like as um, one great Chinese master, Master Xinhua, who inspired Kisa and I very much. Uh, and he he has, has uh, he's passed over now, but he, he established a, a monastery in California. 
And uh, in the 1980s, he came to visit our monasteries in the UK. And at that time, Kirisar and I were still uh, monastics. And uh, Kirisar was part of the um, entourage that went to the airport to meet Master Wa, who's got this phenomenal history as a practitioner, came out of China, um, practiced with Master Xu, Xu Yun, who was like one of these he, phenomenal Chan masters. He lived till he was 120 and was beaten up by the Red Guards and survived. And survived. He should have died, but didn't die because he didn't want to create bad karma for the guys that beat him up. I mean, that kind of level of practitioner, not like, how do we get through a day at IMS? <laughs> Anyway, so Master Xu Wen is this phenomenal uh, presence and being, and he arrived at London Heathrow, and the entourage went to, to, to meet him, and he was very inspired by Master Hua, and suddenly found himself at Heathrow in front of Master Hua, because he was just there. So what do you say? So Kitty Saro said, oh, uh, do you like it here? <laughs> I mean, what are you going to say? And Master Hua said, I like it everywhere. <laughs> everywhere. It's okay everywhere. One of his great teachings was, it's okay, it's all okay. It's all okay everywhere. You know, so everyone's okay. It's all okay. It's all workable. So this is, you know, this is a mature practitioner. This is a mind that can turn the conditions of life, that can turn relationships back into the, the, the soil of uh, practice, the fruit to bring about this awakening, this gradual process of awakening, of maturing, using the Sangha, field of Sangha. So when we, these, these aligning all, ourselves to these priests, uh, to these refuges, and then the three, three of the five, eight great streams, blessings, blessing energy, Blessing, because we know, you know, we 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 have a we we have a uh, you know compass in a way, if you like. We have a we have something that's a, a way of uh, a trustworthy, trustworthy. So it's called a refuge, a harbor. The Buddha, the Buddha said this. They go to many a refuge, to mountains and forests, to park and tree shrines, people threatened with danger. But that's not the secure refuge, not the supreme refuge. That's not the refuge, having gone to which you gain release from all suffering and stress. But when, having gone to the Buddha, the Dharma and the Sangha for refuge, you see with right discernment the four truths, and the way to the stilling of suffering. This is the secure refuge, the supreme refuge, that is the refuge having gone to which you gain release from all suffering and stress. So founding, founding ourselves, Gacchami, moment by moment, gradually, little by little, aligning ourselves. And then there's uh, five streams, sometimes called by the Buddha, gifts that we can make, gifts of fearlessness that we can make to the world around us is the alignment with these five 
great principles, five trainings of the, the precept vehicle. It's called the sila. Seal meaning something like that, which has the connotation of behavior, character, nature, habit. Um, it's these, these aligning our life within the training vehicle of the five precepts, sometimes it's, it's um, a little fraught to talk about this, this area. However, it's, it's such an important foundation because of how, how badly historically morality has been taught, often with fear or with intimidation in religious teachings. Um, and so if, if one can rem- try anyway to remove the understanding of this training from that sort of more historical context um, as something that is very self or is connected with our with with our with not with an external moralizing judging force a judging god that's going to condemn um, that, that uh, has all sorts of connotations of guilt and oppression, um, which we internalize a lot. But actually, the training of precepts in the Buddhist context is, is something that's connected with our own inner authority, actually, our own inner wisdom, our own inner uh, conscience. It's a natural outcome of our... Of of an alignment with the faculty, a healthy faculty of conscience, what in, in Buddhism is called hiri otapa, the faculty, or the you know, when the faculty of conscience is is healthy, then naturally there will be in accordance with this these this precept vehicle. Naturally, we will want to live in a way that's increasingly um, diminishes our capacity for harming ourselves or harming others. That will be a natural outcome of this heightening of what's called the, these, these qualities of conscience, hiri, which means the ability to really sense when we're out of harmony, when we've done something, said something, or acted out of intention that, that has uh, created some disturbance, some ill effect for ourselves or others. It's important to be able to feel that, to sense that, uh, that's, a, that's a natural and healthy faculty. It's not healthy when it turns into creating the sense of me as a bad person, uh, the sense of guilt, internalized guilt, oppression. The oppression of guilt um, can actually be, be designated as an un, unskillful mind state, actually. Uh, one of one of our teachers from Sri Lanka, Godwin Sumaratana, would actually say that that in Sri Lanka they don't actually have a term for guilt. And this is in some ways I, I don't know if this is a particularly Western thing. Maybe it's our Judeo-Christian um, background that we've internalized this tendency towards generating a sense of guilt around the self. So it's a, it's a different thing between that and being able to discern this action or this intention and the effect of it was unwholesome, and I feel that. 
I allow myself to feel that, and it's necessary in the feeling of it, 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 correct, it can correct. There can be discernment. Yeah. So this, this, in Buddhism, this faculty is called hiri, and it's considered a guardian, a guardian of the heart, a guardian of the mind. And when that is operating, it literally protects. It has a protective quality. And then its counterpart, otapa, which means that when we, when perhaps we have an impulse, we really get upset and we have a flare-up of, of some passion and we wish to act out of it, but there is something, what's, something that stops us, a healthy quality of apprehension or fear at the, at the consequence of wrongdoing. And again, that can be a healthy function of conscience. It's not that great to act out of some energies, and we should be able to feel that. So when those are operating, hiri and otapa, uh, in the in the mind, in the heart, then these are considered guardians. They help guard psychologically. They help guard from internal breakdown, the consequences of an accumulated effect of ongoing unskillful action, which has repercussions. And, and it makes it very hard for us then to settle and open and trust. Trust, relaxing enough so that we can gather this quality of samadhi. But also they act as guardians within society, guardians within the world. You know, so when they diminish, the hiri otapa, when those diminish, then we have chaos. We have you know, a lot of what we see going on now when those functions aren't operating. So they're independent, Hiri and Otapara, independent from external. When they're operating healthily, they should be connected to our own wisdom, our own discernment, independent of, uh, can be independent of the morals of the society. The society could say, this is right, but our inner ethic might say, maybe it's not. (laughs) And, you know, we have to discern what is really wholesome, what is right in this situation. So to be ethical is, to be, is, is a challenging process. We might suffer consequences to maintain our ethic in the face of a society that says uh, opposite behavior is actually moral. So, it's, so it takes a lot of discernment, a lot of courage, a lot of inquiry to really discern. And, and the Buddha helped give some these five great principles um, not to take life or to refrain or to to train actually the, the none of the principles are black and white sort of you know like you know um, they're, they're very there's lots of gray areas there's there's lots of ground for for contemplation they are trainings yeah. each of these these uh, precepts are sikabidan which means they tr- we train ourselves with them, these five great principles. So the first training to refrain from taking from taking life. The second one to refrain from taking what is not offered or given to us, what's not meant for us. The third one to practice care with our sensuality and sexuality, to refrain from exploiting ourselves or others in a way that leads to harm. And the fourth great principle to take care with our speech, that our speech is timely, uh, truthful, uh, conducive of harmony, of friendship. 
is we lessen, try and lessen speech that's divisive, that's harsh, uh, that's untrue. And then the, the fifth great principle to guard um, the instrument of our awakening, our consciousness, not to use intoxicants in a way that distorts consciousness so that it, it enables or lessens our ability to be uh, act skillfully, to be conscious, to be discerning. So we might, you know, if we were, we might take the training at, at first of all, trying not to kill human beings, and it might get to the subtle level of trying not to hold harmful thoughts projected against ourselves. <laughs> you know, so there's a whole gradation of training that we can, you know, uh, find our way with. But the Buddha commented. that as we um, practice um, these five great principles along with the three refuges, uh, generating this, uh, these eight streams of blessings in our life, then he commented that, uh, that we are making a gift, particularly in the observation of these or cultivation of these precepts, we're making, uh, they're like making a gift to ourselves and other beings. We're making a gift of, of fearlessness, of freedom of oppression, of trustworthiness. So this is a very positive way of looking at observing these, these trainings. And then, you know, even more subtly, we're making a profound gift to our own being. We're lessening the causes that, that, you know, of suffering within our lives and within the sphere of our family, the sphere of our community, the sphere of our society sphere of our, our planetary, uh, shared planetary consciousness. These eight streams of merit, said the Buddha, streams of wholesome nourishments of happiness are heavenly, ripening in happiness, conducive to heaven, and lead to whatever is wished for, loved for and agreeable to one's welfare and happiness. What are these eight? The three refuges and the giving of these five gifts of the precepts. Pristine of long-standing, traditional, ancient, unadulterated, here disciples, one refrains from, mentions the five precepts, and by giving by doing this, one gives to immeasurable beings freedom from fear, hostility, and oppression. He or she themselves will then enjoy immeasurable freedom from fear, hostility, and oppression. These disciples are the eight streams of blessings, streams of the wholesome nourishments of happiness, which are heavenly, ripening in happiness, conducive to heaven, and which lead to whatever is wished for, loved and agreeable to one's welfare and happiness. So in the, this gradual training, 
that the Buddha laid out. Uh, We've had uh, the capacity today to observe these precepts, to align ourselves with these refuges, and upon that foundation, little by little, to cultivate this uh, path activity of samadhi, gatheredness, gathering the energies of, uh, of the heart, energies of the thinking mind, energy of the body, gathering all that into awareness, into this quality of presence, into this capacity to contemplate, to mindfully discern, to be with how it is. And in doing so, little by little, we're deepening our capacity, uh, deepening the seeds, uh, deepening the causes for awakening in our lives here and now. So may it be so, and may we, uh, as we finish tonight, may we also remember uh, not only ourselves in this practice of awakening, but may we also draw into our contemplation, into our meditation, um, our families, our communities, um, those all beings, whether near or far, and sharing these blessings. May we share the blessings. Uh, with all beings, wherever they dwell, may they uh, somehow mysteriously benefit from our practice here at IMS. May it sort of ripple out and touch others in a mysterious way. We share this uh, interconnectedness with all beings, I believe, and I believe that this practice, uh, although perhaps doesn't look (coughs) very spectacular on the outside, Sitting here, I believe this practice of uh, awareness uh, has a transformative effect and ripples out and touches other beings, touches the consciousness around us. So not to take lightly our practice today. It has its effect. It ripens uh, into awakening not only for ourselves but for others. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.